everyone, welcome to the Brand Up Podcast, the place for founders with a million ideas, neurodivergent minds, and growing brands. If you sometimes find traditional marketing advice trickier to follow than you'd like, friend, you're not alone. I've lost count of the neurodivergent founders I've worked with who find traditional marketing advice difficult to follow, exhausting to execute, and frankly, disappointing in its results. On this podcast, you will learn about marketing that works for all kinds of brains. You'll hear conversations with experts who found their way to success, both online and in the real world. Whether I'm interviewing a guest or sharing the occasional solo episode, my promise is that we'll share useful information about how to market your business with more ease and better results, especially if, like me, you're neurodivergent. Two last things before we get started with today's episode. First, I joyfully live in a house with a considerable number of Devon Rex cats, five to be precise. They are a chatty bunch and they really don't like it when I close my office door. So if you hear them crying, fear not. I promise they get all the cuddles in the world once this recording is over. And two, I am prone to dropping the occasional sweary word. And I invite my guests not to censor themselves either when they join me on the podcast. So if you have sensitive ears around, pop some headphones in and you'll be all set. Let's get to today's episode. My guest today is Ashanti Bentil Dew. She's the CEO and founder of Good Soil Leaders, which is an inclusive work culture and coaching company specializing in helping diversity, equity, and inclusion teams and professionals globally. She works with senior leaders to create true, lasting cultural change that makes workplaces safe and positive for everyone who works there. As you listen, you'll learn how carefully Ashanti and her team use language and how she really doesn't buy into the usual marketing methodologies to build her profitable business. I loved our talk and the fresh perspective Ashanti brings to the role of marketing, brand voice, and language, especially in the B2B space. I started by asking Ashanti to talk about how she differentiates herself and her company from other practitioners in her field. First of all, you know, our water is wet messaging is that we help organizations get clear on what their next diversity, equity, and inclusion steps are. That's really on the tin what we do. There's a lot of clarity work that we do with our clients and that is one of the main things that sets us aside we are not a training provider really um, although of course sometimes part of the intervention that we may suggest requires training but what we do is we take a very neutral unbiased non-political approach to the work that we do with organizations and we're focused on workplace culture we're focused on creating environments that enable your employees to do the job they've been paid to do. When you say it that way, Ashanti, it doesn't sound like something that is optional. 
different people have different intersectional specificities. Mine are that I am a woman and that I am neurodivergent AF. So the traditional workplace has had challenges, particularly yes. agency life. We all, I won't speak for you, but you also have some specificities that mm -hmm. make you not a white, wealthy man. Yes. And so it's not, it's, it's not an optional thing. And it's also, it can't be a box ticking exercise. And what I hear you saying is that when you say that you're not a training organization, that yeah, you might offer training as part of, but fundamentally you're talking about creating a culture and you have, I was waiting for you to use the word and you didn't say it, a culture where all employees feel exactly. what? Uh, feel like they can do the job they've been paid to do without inhibition, without barriers that are related obviously to their identity. That yeah. shouldn't be the case. And actually, it's very funny because um, that includes white males. <laughs> the conversation now, you know, has, has moved, unfortunately, to a place. And I can understand why, because there has been a collision of academia, of social justice, activism and workplace culture work. Because really, the, 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 the latest modern day milestone was the George Floyd murder. Mm -hmm. So those things all collided together and that's not always helpful because in actual fact, if you identify as a white male, you are very much a part of this conversation and the work that we do as practitioners should be benefiting them as well. Okay. It is a minority of people in society, in any community that is white male and wealthy. When we look at that top 1% of the global population, it's a minority, hardly anybody falls into that category. Now, of course, it is true that historically that that minority group of people have a hold on resources, access, on power, on authority. That's absolutely true, but it's really important for us to recognize first of all and be clear that if you identify as a male and you are white, for example, you are very much a needed and valuable part of the work that needs to be done. Thank you for that. Thank you. I feel the record <laughs> has been set straight and that is a critical nuance to even what I just said. So thank you yes. for that. That's, that's really helpful. And you mentioned something there about social justice work, this, this, mm. this unfortunate confluence of events and of movements in society and of shifts in language. And that's, you know, what we're going to be talking about today. We'll be talking about the voice of your brand, your brand of DEI work and, you know, the importance of language. You said to me when we were preparing this conversation that it's really important to you that there is clear understanding that diversity, equity, and inclusion work is not social justice work. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I know that many of my peers disagree with this, right? So, <laughs> so it's a point I, I, of differentiation. Yes, I'm well aware that many of my peers disagree with this. I don't believe it has to be social justice work. And when you look at the nature of activism and social justice, for good reason, it has to be agitative. It has to be robust. It has to be urging, pushing, breaking boundaries. It has to do that. Otherwise, it wouldn't be activism, right? It just yeah. wouldn't work, right? Regardless of the cause. However, in the context of workplaces... Those traits, attitudes, methodologies, ways of doing things, 
if you ever research around what it really takes actually to <laughs> stage a coup or create a revolution, those traits and methodologies are not helpful in a workplace environment. If everybody approached things in that way, you would have a complete breakdown of an already broken system. There's that element. Two, CEOs and board members, who are the ones making the decisions in businesses, don't, generally speaking, they are not coming from that perspective. That isn't an item line on the agenda when boards meet social justice. Generally speaking, it's not. And so it's really key to understand what is on their agenda and speak their language. So this work in the context of the workplace, I'm always very clear, if you're looking at society and communities, then of course social justice is ever relevant. But in the context of a workplace, the marketplace and the commercial lens that a CEO and a board and senior leaders are taking, you can do this work effectively and efficiently without it being connected to or driven by social justice and activism. What I'm hearing you say ties back to something that I was hoping you would say earlier, which is around keeping the workplace safe, right? Yes. You said earlier, giving people the conditions and the circumstances and the tools and the recognition and time, et cetera, in order to be best equipped to do their jobs because yes. they feel safe. And if you are in an environment where there is a lot of conflict, you're talking about, you know, what it takes to stage a coup or not saying that activism is coup staging, but it, no. but it requires a, an energy and a level of fire to, exactly. to create a movement, right? And is creating a movement with that flavor the most effective way that is that creates the safest environment for everyone in the workplace of all identities? Because that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. And also, if that does happen, because we saw, again, post-George Floyd, there was a lot of activity coming from employees. In fact, I'd say 75% of organizations, the changes they may have made, or at least the external statements that they made, were driven by an internal push from employees saying, this matters. What are your thoughts on this? What's your stance as an organization? So, it can be useful, but for a specific period of time. You can't stay in that methodology, approach, and mindset in the long term in a workplace environment to get the change that you say you want. You have to understand when you need to use that energy, that methodology, and when not to, right? Because when it comes to having a conversation with a CEO or board members and getting them to understand how this actually contributes to business transformations like productivity, reputation, and profitability, social activism, or even the moral case, is not the strongest argument to go with. And if it were, we would see better change by now. You said to me when we were speaking last that you are not particularly attached to the sentimentality or morality of your work. Can you talk no. about that a little bit? Because you just touched on it now. No, not at all. I mean, honestly, as a human being, we all have, you know, varying degrees of consciousness. I can say personally, I can be and probably was, especially growing up, I would absorb a lot of injustice. I would feel that in my body. Right. And as a human being, I could almost feel the pain of other groups of people, people who were experiencing injustice on various levels. 
that can be very wearing. I wouldn't be able to survive as a practitioner. I wouldn't be very useful to my clients if that was my dominant state of mind. That's the first thing. So as a personal individual, I do a lot of work to be able to obviously keep myself well, but separate the two. Number two, as a practitioner and in my experience, the moral case definitely isn't the strongest. It doesn't move CEOs and boards. We'd all like to think it does, but it doesn't. And so I'm not attached. What I am attached to is making sure that we've helped those leaders, those decision makers, understand what they need to do to ensure that their work environment is, one, safe, physically safe, but also obviously intellectually safe for the people they're paying to do a job. If I was attached to the moral case, this probably wouldn't be the best job to do (laughs) because half the time, in fact, 95% of the time, we're not really talking about the moral issues and we're not relying on the moral issues to influence, to upskill, to drive change within workplaces. You now have a global network of 45, right? 45 diversity, equity, and inclusion consultants who work with you all over the world. It's not possible for one person to do all of the work that your business does. And so you have this, this ever increasing capacity to be a hinge for change, right? You're like the the roundabout that gets, you know, people are are doing things in one way and there's a culture that doesn't provide safety, that doesn't provide understanding and acceptance, because those are the the things that some of the things, and I'm sure just a few of the ingredients that are needed in order Mm. for us to feel safe and peaceful enough to do our best work. Yes. I don't know where this analogy came from, but if you're at the center of that roundabout, right? And you have your consultants around the world who are doing this work. Yes. How much time have you spent as you've grown your business, even from day one, Mm -hmm. thinking about the brand that you were building Mm -hmm. and how did you go about building that brand? So this is a really good question. And I know you and I talked about this and and it's funny because I don't ordinarily, it was only when you and I started talking that I actually started really actually mulling over what I would say the brand actually is. Mm. And I think without a doubt, the brand probably lives more through my voice and through my voice and the delivery of what we do. And that then led to the choosing of the business name that we have right now, the brand name that we have right now, right? So we're called Good Soil Leaders. And that really came from the fact that whenever I'm talking to organizations, the approach, our protocol, our methodology is about digging deep into what's the soil, What's at the foundation of this organization before we start planting seeds to grow flowers, which is often things like training and recruitment. Let's look at the soil first and get clear on the health of the soil. And so my brand probably has evolved over the last 10 years through mainly my voice and the fact that I believe that this should be neutral, unbiased work, very focused on clarity and competency. And so, yeah, I, I, I suppose I haven't taken a traditional approach to building a brand. I didn't think logo first or brand name first. It was more about the way we do things and the way we support the organizations that we work with. 
I think that's how it evolved upon reflection. And of course, my voice, as I said, I know that many of my peers disagree with the approach I take, particularly the fact that, as I say, I'm not an activist. As an organization, we are not an activist organization. You will see that on my LinkedIn, on our website, we don't necessarily produce content or events around every cultural awareness month there is in the calendar. Like that's not the work I believe we need to do and should be doing. What I want to focus on is this clarity and competency piece, the nitty gritty, um, not the activism side of of the work that is done in this industry. There's the focus on the competency and the clarity that you yes. you both express, demonstrate, and help your clients' organizations get mm-hmm. get to that clarity yes. and and seeing where their competencies lies and maybe where they've got you know too much clay in their soil or too many rocks or or gravel or whatever it is that we exactly. want to we want to take the analogy. But there's also as it has come through your voice, and this is a conversation I often have with my clients, and we haven't had this conversation yet, so I'm interested to hear what interested to hear what you say. One of the things that I will say to my clients without fail is that you are not your brand. Mm. And it is obvious that if people book in to work with good soil leaders, they are not getting your earlobe or one of your nostrils. They are not getting Ashanti. They're getting the decades of experience that you have working for massive organizations in the finance industry and other places and plus your your lived experience as a black person growing up a woman growing up in the cultures that you grew up in feeling all of those feelings having whatever the experiences are that you're having you bring all of those things into this business and there are 45 people consulting with you so it's coming through you but your brand's voice is not all of you. Right. It is of you, but it's not you. Thank you. And there's a lot there. And you're right. We haven't had this conversation before. I, I will share a few things. And I've just, you know, made a mental note of the few things I'd love to touch on there. One is, it's interesting about my lived experience because I get asked this a lot. I don't do this work because I'm a black woman. I don't. I'm trained. I've got experience in... The, the, the competencies that you need around coaching, training, facilitating, etc. That's mm-hmm. the reason why I do this work, because those are my strengths and this aligns with my strengths. And therefore, I know we can have the impact that we need to be having on behalf of employees. Yeah. And that's the other thing I always say. We're there to make sure that we can encourage enable that organization to make the environment safe for employees to do the job they're being paid to do. I do not go in and work on behalf of the organization. Now the organization benefits, of course, but that's the first thing. So, and then that leads me on to my next point of the detachment from ego. And I think a lot of business owners obviously experience this because lots of people are really attached to maybe the reasons why they started their business and brand. And it being based around them. And I think we live in a world in general now, if you think about the way social media and the cult of personality and influencing, generally speaking, people are either encouraged or inclined to build things that are an extension of them, that whether directly or indirectly celebrates them, builds them up, feeds their ego. And in the work that we do, you need to be detached from ego because you are not going to be the most effective 
if you need to be the hero or the superstar. A large part of what we do is getting to that point where senior leaders believe the idea is their own. They can own that idea and therefore drive it forward. And so ego is is something that you have to be very aware of and always be trying to contain in the context of this work that we do. And so you're quite right. I deliberately built this business based on principles that would not revolve around who I am, my lived experience, or even my opinions, actually, quite frankly. It is based, obviously, on the methodology I've created, but I'm very satisfied at this point that that methodology is neutral and unbiased. It's peer-reviewed, etc. Um, the other thing I did want to talk to you, say, actually mention is that, but in terms of me, I guess, and my role, I do take the stewardship of that very seriously. I guess that's where I still have a role, which is that I do believe that I am credible, capable, and the right person to steward the methodology that we use with organizations. But I don't believe ever it should be of me. Does that make sense? But I do believe I am the best person to steward the way we do things. Oh, hello. I have an invitation for you. Do you ever feel like you're always starting from scratch when you create marketing content? Or hired a freelancer who did an okay job, but somehow their words just didn't sound like you? Maybe you have team members waiting for you to approve marketing content so you can get the word out about your amazing offer. Ugh, I feel you. It's hard. And I have good news. What if you could curate everything you know about your brand into a comprehensive collection and have it handy by your side every time you wanted to communicate? Or better still, hand it over to your team, brain transplant style so you'd be sure that they'd get the voice just right. You can. Helping you do that is my superpower, which is handy because I'm currently taking applications for Loud and Clear. It's the small group program that I created to help entrepreneurs like you sort through all that muddled spaghetti of stuff that you know about your brand. We start early in 2024. Wanna come along for the ride? Over three months, we'll create a resource that saves you time, effort, energy, and money. Best of all, it gets your work known without you ever having to start from scratch or be the bottleneck for your team. If you're ready to focus on what you do best instead of all the marketing, then Loud and Clear might be for you. If you know that you need to do this work, but group programs aren't really your jam, I also work one-to-one. -one. The link to contact me about this is in the show notes, or you can get in touch with me on socials at Andy Ferguson. Whether you are interested in the Loud and Clear group program, or if you think you'd like us to rock it ahead, the two of us together. Either way, sharing what's in your head helps your brand grow. Let's get back to the episode. I love that clarification mm. and this idea of stewardship because when you were talking about ego and this work I had this image of someone who was doing the kind of work that you do 
has an egoic brand or an egoic perspective or approach to this work, then that person becomes a really thick, gloopy mass to move through to get to the result that you need. I'm really interested because you've been talking about your clients and what your clients need and saying in the same breath, CEOs and board members. But actually, you just said what I was thinking, which is that actually you're hired by the CEOs and the board members, but your clients, the end beneficiaries of your work are every single person in that company culture. Yes, leveraging the egos that are around that table so that they feel ownership and yes. commitment to this work is part of your magic, your strategy, your approach, your methodology. It's what makes it stick because otherwise I would assume that you could easily come in and do the work and then leave and nothing really happens. Whereas when they own it, they then carry it, are committed to it. And once we have a commitment as humans, when we've invested time and energy, et cetera, into an activity or into a perspective or an approach, we're less likely to backtrack. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when we think about brand, obviously the next part of the conversation sometimes is around legacy. You know, what's your reputation and what's your legacy? And that's why, as I say, it's really important that we stay focused on the way we do things because the legacy is in the environment that these employees now have to work in, right? Yeah. And so it's always about making sure you do no harm, first of all. Yeah. And I always think about that in terms of the medical field, always talk yeah. about do no harm. For me, in yeah. diversity, equity, and inclusion work, that is number one, right? Do no harm. And then you should be contributing to positive trajectory, not actually adding to what's happening. And the problem is if you are not detached from your ego, if you're not neutral and unbiased, if you don't have that end employee in mind, then you can end up making things worse. You have spoken about your methodology. You may not have done the work intentionally around, mm -hmm. like put a label on it and said, I'm going to work on my brand voice and my messaging at the moment. I would bet everything that I have that you absolutely have been hellfire intentional on the way that you use language so that it is neutral and the way you build that roundabout that you move people around and, and get them flowing through. Talk to me just about, about the language, how you have created the language for your version of DEI work, your methodology, and how you get 45 people around the world, plus all of the support team I imagine you have, get on board and, and integrate that language? That is a contentious thing, mainly because of social justice language um, and the way it's circulated on social media and the way sometimes academic terms are taken out of that context and then used very colloquially. And suddenly people think they're up on the language and they're using it entirely incorrectly or in the wrong context. You take terms like white privilege, for example. I mean, I've never seen a term cause so much contention <laughs> in people before. And I think one of the main reasons is that a lot of people use it, but they don't understand what it really means. And so there has been a journey when it comes to language for us as a business. I, from the very beginning, decided that, one, we do not provide terminology guides because that does not help that business move forward at all. All it means is that they're always looking to see what the latest meaning or new word might be. That doesn't actually change anything from a cultural perspective in an organization. Secondly, I tend to steer away from using words that I know originate in the field of academia, 
or originate in social justice circles because what happens is, is that you are then battling the unseen, which is all the thoughts, connotations, feelings, which are very visceral and real to people. We stay away where possible from using those terms. And if we do get asked to do a session on privilege, it's very carefully thought through according to who the participants are. And a lot of time is spent on mindset before we even go into discussing the content because we are very aware of how language and the way we use language can either alienate people or indeed unite people, right? Language is very powerful. So I'd say it's definitely been a journey from a delivery perspective for us as an organization. Where possible, I try not to even use the terms diversity, equity, and inclusion, where possible, right? I talk about workplace behaviors, for example. We will talk about collaborative working, we will use terms that are far more tame generally for people um, in terms of their perceptions and, and how willing they might be to even come into the conversation. We try to stay away from using those terms. And I think, again, the time period we lived in in that, that aftermath of George Floyd where everybody was at home, everybody was on social media, you know, really did affect, I believe, or create a lot of misunderstanding and misconceptions about this work. Because anybody then, you could be in a pub, you could be in a cafe, or you could be at home in your front room having a conversation about things that aren't being contextualized, where you're not discussing nuance. There's no real accurate understanding of what's actually being discussed here. And I think that contributed to the confusion, I believe, in, in the industry and the value we actually can add to workplaces. It's fascinating to hear you talk about that because in the work that I do, we're very intentional with all of the clients with the exact words that we use and why we use them. And it feels, the sense I'm getting is that in your work, perhaps more than in, in other work that I have done with clients in you know industries ranging from sustainable fashion to parent coaching via agricultural consulting and all sorts, it feels especially critical in the work that you do to be ever so mindful because people need to come into the roundabout and they need to come in willingly and have their wheels turning and be willing to be in movement and to, yeah. to find an exit that works for them and their team and their, their employees. And the, whether it be the people around the boardroom table down to the person who's ordering the coffee cartridges yeah. for their whatever. I'm fascinated. You would prefer to avoid using the words diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, and I'm not surprised because at the same time, there's a beautiful expression in French, which is um, mot valise, which means suitcase words. Collaboration is a big suitcase word. Diversity, equity, inclusion are suitcase words. Everyone brings their own baggage exactly. to these words. I'm really geekily interested as a linguist by your noticing of actually it doesn't serve the end population. So the employees who they deserve a safe workplace culture. That's all we're doing, right? That's right? the bottom line. That's why we're yeah. doing it. That's why it can be very challenging, you know, because when you do take it from a social justice lens in the workplace, and by the way, I'm not saying there's no place for it. It just really does need to be contextualized. But in terms of changing culture, changing systems, and therefore changing outcomes, it's really important that you are using language that, is is relatable, accessible, 
understandable. Like that's the basics of inclusion and communication anyway. If no one understands what you're talking about, then this isn't good communication. People do not understand what we're actually talking about. And so we can't really move beyond that. So we have to make sure, first of all, that the language being used is understood, accessible and clear. Number one, regardless of what you're talking about, like it needs to be water is wet messaging. I think the other issue as well is that, particularly in this industry, is that you have two things that happen. If you're using language that isn't helpful, right, it, there's a loftiness that's created, an unachievable goal is then created in people's minds. And then they think, or then they start saying things like, it's a journey, it's not easy to change. Now, whilst those things are true, but there actually is one more step you could take that is achievable for you <laughs> to make. But because some of these statements and terms and phrases feel so high, it then feels really unachievable for organizations, leaders to reach. And actually it's not, we can start, there's a ladder here of steps. So I think that's why also language in this work is so important because otherwise people feel that they can't do it. And if they don't have the capacity, energy, maybe they've never done it before, maybe they don't have the stamina it takes and you know organizations need stamina to do this work do the ups and downs so that's why it's really important to use language that is accessible clear for for them the other issue we have is if you're too inspirational it will always sit then in a bucket of nice feel good it's all about people's feelings and again it is much more visceral realistic there's steps on the ladder to get there so i think those are the other issues you find when the wrong language is being used. It's either too lofty and out of reach or it's too inspirational and therefore airy-fairy and, and you can never quite grasp the tangibleness of the work that we do. It sounds like you have found the, the approach and the language that opens doors wide instead of like people cracking them open, being afraid of what they hear and see being afraid that they might do it wrong, feeling overwhelmed and just slamming the door. Like, no, I, I can't because it's too woolly or it's too lofty or it's too complicated or I'm tired already and it's not my problem, right? All of the things that not only the, the words chosen, but the intensity of the communication isn't titrated to the people on the other side, then that is actually an impediment to communication. And that's that's true for the work that you do when you're approaching the board, but it's also true for us everyone who has a business who does any kind of marketing, if you go out and you fire hose with intensity, you're very likely to have people who are your ideal clients going, whoa, ah, no. Once that's understood, you see things move so much more faster. Mm -hmm. There have been times over the years where I have maybe had self-doubt around our methodology because of its simplicity. The methodology is simple, but it does require a certain level of competency and skill to deploy mm -hmm. successfully. And that's what time has taught me. Mm -hmm. Whereas sometimes some of my colleagues are writing books, research papers, or they're you know, sharing think pieces on LinkedIn as part of their marketing. I don't engage in that because I know from experience that all it requires is our methodology, which often happens behind closed doors anyway, with these decision makers and stakeholders within organizations. And so I think there have been times where maybe I have not been as confident about our brand voice because of what I see other people commonly doing in the space, right? Mm -hmm. um, but with time, I have realized that this is actually more important. 
this is the part that's more important and it's more effective. So I don't, I try not to be distracted by, you know, people applying for awards or writing books or being listed on the top 10 DEI practitioners, that kind of thing, because quite frankly, it can be distracting and it can make you almost second guess the approach that we take. But actually, I think about the legacy that we are leaving in these organizations. For example, we have some HR directors we've worked with who've moved to other organizations and the work they now do in that organization has been influenced by the coaching and upskilling they received from us. And that is a massive impact to have a HR director, particularly white female HR directors, because they make up 80% of HR, for example, and HR obviously is the least popular function in any business. Mm. The impact that we are having, that's the legacy we're leaving because that HR director moves forward far more competent and clearer on what the real issues are, but more importantly, knows how to approach them. And that is an ego piece for me. That's why I said about that constant thinking about ego, because when I focus more on the impact and legacy we're having, I focus less on whether I should be spending time applying for awards, writing books, or getting onto these lists, because that's ego leading in that instance, not actually me thinking about the legacy of what we do. Tell me how much time you now or historically or as a business spend doing what we would most commonly call marketing activities. Mm. For example, creating social media content. You mentioned think pieces on LinkedIn. You mentioned applying for awards, which is funny because you've been a judge on the Squidgillion <laughs> Award panel. So I think that's kind of funny as well. Um, yeah. So you're, you're in, you're sort of participating in it, but not feeling the need to, to seek the yes. validation. So email list building, funnel creation, all the things that we're told are absolutely essential and that I see so many of my clients spending endless time doing all of these things. How much time have you spent in growing of your hugely profitable business of 45 consultants around the world? I'm saying hugely, I don't actually know your financials, but I know it's profitable because you've told yeah, me. we are profitable. So I would say when I started the business 10 years ago, I obviously was misguided. And again, you can be distracted by what people tell you you need to do to build a business. When in actual fact, they're just keeping you busy. It doesn't bring money in. But I would say since I matured as an entrepreneur specifically, over the last three, four years, I do very little actual social media creation of content. Now, I do have two podcasts, but for me, those are sales tools, not marketing tools. So the goal, and I don't put any effort into widening my listenership on those podcasts because I use them in the sales process with prospective clients and I use them post-sale in terms of their education and awareness. So I don't can't tell you the last time I even looked to see how many downloads we actually have, but I know that we're winning really not only lucrative from a business perspective, but really important pieces of work. And a lot of the time it is because my brand voice obviously comes through very clearly in that podcast content. And so what I'll find is a HR director and even a CEO will say, oh, I listened to your podcast on X, Y, Z. And you said, can I ask you about that? Or that let me know a bit more about your approach. Mm -hmm. And after that, I don't really have to do any selling. It's more of a case of how do you want to work with us? Also, again, as an entrepreneur and from a business building perspective, that stuff wastes a lot of time. Look, unless you're in a product business or you sell direct to consumer, for example, 
We don't. We're a B2B business. And our decision makers aren't scrolling on Instagram or even LinkedIn, quite frankly, just waiting for a post from me to come up. They're not. They're often under pressure. And what really works is rapport building with them over time. The expert at hand is the expert that gets hired. Yeah. And so my job is to make sure I'm at hand, whether they are working with us or not, I'm at hand providing valuable advice or information. And how are you at hand? The key things just looking at this year, for example, is um, speaking at events just where my decision makers are. So a lot of people end up going to events where their peers are. Well, they're not going to buy from me. That's a waste of time. I go and speak at events where my decision makers are. And not only do, my goal is never to speak as a keynote speaker, never. My goal is to get them to give me a round table or seminar slot because I can use my brand voice in those more intimate situations with a group of 10 decision makers and convert at least three sales from that one conversation. So you really want to be where your decision makers are and the more intimate you can get, the better. So that's one of my key lead generation activities is speaking in a seminar or a roundtable, an intimate exchange with decision makers. The second thing that I do is I do run executive forums. So I will do a virtual or in-person executive forum just for our target decision makers on a topic I know is relevant to them and I'll invite them along. It's free. They exchange. We may provide a bit of information and then we use that to generate leads. So those, I would say, are the two main things that I use. And then the third one, I would say, is... I probably network a lot, to be fair. I do go out and network, but again, it's very targeted and selective. It's in spaces where a head of HR, a COO, a CFO is. I don't really network with people who do what I do, or and when I say I don't network, I don't, not for lead generation. I'm being yeah. very specific here, not for lead generation. So it's targeted networking hosting executive forums and adding value and then speaking specifically at roundtables and seminars at events within the industry I'm targeting. I love that tip of yeah. a smaller audience where you're able to have more intimate conversations, build yes. a better and more direct rapport is yes. a million percent more likely to convert than the ego boosting standing in front of a crowd of 2,000 people where you have 30 people coming to ask you questions and you make no sales. And half the time, quite frankly, in the keynote speaking room, people are there because they have to be there or they're resting. Like not everybody in that room is necessarily interested in the talk that's actually happening. The other thing is that, look, keynote speaking is a skill. There are, it depends on whether the speaker has been paid in advance or they're doing it for free as to whether or not they can actually do a sales pitch or, you know, use it to generate leads anyway. So it can be quite limiting keynote talks, depending upon the logistics and the arrangements that happen behind closed doors. And thirdly, as you can probably tell, my brand voice isn't about charisma or inspiration. I'm not here to inspire you. Competency and clarity will help you get active. And so generally speaking, I'm not the best keynote speaker in this space because I find it frustrating that we're talking about things to inspire people. I'm like, let's get to the nitty gritty of what we actually need to do next. 
And so I'm not necessarily suited to keynote speaking as well, because I just don't have that pizzazz. I don't care for it. I'm very much about let's get to the root of the issue. And that's one of the reasons why a CEO will give me time because they know that we're only putting 20 minutes into the diary. There's an agenda for the 20 minutes. We get through the agenda. I'm not there to waste time, take up too much time and talk about things that aren't relevant. And blow smoke up anyone's backside. But that's just my style. And I guess that is, again, part of our brand voice that sets us apart, I would say, from our, our peers. Ashanti, I could talk to you about this all day. (laughs) However, I know that you have a profitable business to run and other things to do. So I am so grateful for you taking the time today. Thank you for your perspective. Thank you for sharing that important piece around doing, being really mindful about how you spend the time that you are marketing and making sure you're reaching the decision makers fewer, but closer and better for more conversions. And, and what I would say is that, I mean, I know marketing has its place depending on the business you run and the sector you're in. But if you think money, you will realize that most of the things on your task list don't lead you to money. That's, and that's the, the real reality of it. When you look at your task list, you think, well, that's not leading me to money. That's not. So whatever leads you straight to the money, which is usually sending an email, making a phone call, those things lead to money. Getting on a call, video call, phone call with someone who has the decision to decide whether or not to work with you is really your number one priority every single day in business. Yeah, sending those invoices, making sure things yes. are followed up, the processes, exactly. all of that stuff. It ain't yeah. sexy, but boy, does it bring in the cash. It does. Ashanti, you've been an absolute delight. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Brand Up Podcast, the neurodivergent founders hub for all things brain, voice, and brand. If you'd like to learn more about what you heard today, head to the show notes for all the useful usual links. Most importantly, if you're ready for marketing to be easier, and if you have a niggle that working on your brand voice strategy and messaging will help, it really will. I'd love to talk to you about your brand. You can book a chat with me by reaching out on socials or through the link in the show notes. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a minute to follow the podcast and do leave us a review. That way more brilliant neurodivergent founders like you and me will find the podcast and get the support they need. Marketing can be easier, more effective and more fun when you share what's in your brain so your brand can grow. Speak soon.